two years ago, two weeks before my wife and I traveled to Israel, my brother came to our house and he consulted my wife about some bleeding in his stool. And, uh, you know, Sylvia said, maybe it's um, bacteria or whatever. So we went to Israel. And then while we were there, we heard the news that uh, after his uh, biopsy, my brother had third stage colon cancer. You know, as a pastor, in our church, we have met some situations where we had members who have gone through that kind of experience. In Show Boulevard, we had about six people who have had those kinds of illnesses. So I thought I was ready for that. And it was good that that early morning, the rest of the people in the mess hall have left, and it was just me and my wife. So nobody saw and heard me wet for my brother. What do you do? How do you respond when you are confronted by trials? Here are some of the responses of people when they are beset by trials. Some, they are apathetic already. They are not emotionally affected because they feel it's too common, it too will pass. Others will have anxiety, they will feel restless, they will worry to the point of panicking. Others will go through self-pity. They will feel helpless, hopeless, and some of them will tend to withdraw. Others will be angry. Why me? Why now? I don't deserve this. Others will grumble or complain. They will blame other people, and they will come to the point of fighting. They will fight it out. Others will tend to seek solution, and if needed, they will ask for help. While others, they will doubt God, they will be angry with God, whereas some, they will draw nearer to God. You know, our family, my brother especially, I was observing him the past two years, and he resorted to the seventh one. He, he drew even much closer to God. How do we face and overcome trials and temptations in our lives? Later, I will define their differences. The suggestion of James, chapter 1, verse 9, up to verse 18, is we will overcome trial and temptations if we have the right kind of perspective. In Tagalog, tamang pananaw. Look at James, chapter 1, verse 9. The brother of humble circumstances is to glory in his high 
position. In other translation, the brother who is poor is to rejoice in his high position. You know, when you are beset by trial and you have no money, you know, you feel so miserable. You know, I remember one call in DCAS and the daughter of a deceased father was asking the counselor, did we not sin? And the counselor said, why? Why are you asking that question? Because my father had kidney problem and he had to go through dialysis. But we ran out of money. So we cannot afford to pay for his dialysis. And he died. So did we sin? You know, that kind of feeling that when you're poor, when you are indigent, you pity yourself. But here, James is saying the reverse. When you are a Christian and you are poor, you glory in your high position. The Greek word for glory is different from the usual word for glory in the Bible because the word glory in the Bible is doxa, where we get the word doxology. Here, James used the word kao, kaomai, which means to glory, to take pride, to boast, to rejoice, to exalt. If I'm a poor person, I will rejoice and I call my poverty high position. You know, isn't that living outside reality? The word high position means uh, dignity, eminence, altitude. So when you are poor and you are beset by trials, you should not wallow in self-pity or helplessness or hopelessness. Instead, if you are a Christian, you glory in your high position. And what is that high position when you are poor? In one translation, the Living Bible, it says, a Christian who doesn't amount too much in this world, meaning who is poor, should be glad for he is great in the Lord's sight. In the world, you look pathetic. You look helpless. You look indigent. But as far as God is concerned, you are in a high position. You know, sometimes when we read words like that in the Bible, we say, this is what I'm saying. The Bible is irrelevant. The Bible is not real. But I like to show you that the Bible is more real than what we expect. So let's look at two unhealthy perspectives about the poor. Perspective number one, the most recent. The kalipunan ng damayang mahihirap. In short, kadiwa. Kadi, kadiwa. <laughs> ano nga, tama ba? Kadamay. Kadamay. So why are they popular now in the Philippines? Because the last time, as a group, they took over a housing project of the government. That housing project 
was for policemen and army people. But the policemen and army people were not occupying those houses built by NHA. So this group of people in Metro Manila went to that area and occupied those houses. And what was the response of the president? To give them those houses. But the president said, that's the last time you will do it because the next time you will do it, you will have problem with me. And this week they did it again. And the president said in radio, in the TV, I'm giving you until 12 noon tomorrow to vacate the new places that you are occupying or else you will have problem with the president. How did this group of poor people look at themselves? Look at what they are clamoring for. Libring kuryente, libring tubig, libring kabuhayan na dapat ibigay ng gobyerno. It seems that if you are poor, you have that right to demand from the government. It seems that, you know, the government owes you something. The government isn't perfect, but it is trying its best to address the housing problem in the Philippines. Of course, they are not doing very well. They are not doing very well. But it is not a reason why if you are poor, you will demand the government to give you something for free. I have an older friend who is an administrator of a city. And he was so excited with this project because his project was to build a high-rise building for the poor. And he was so excited because he wanted to help the poor. So that housing project was finished. And it has complete facilities, electricity, water, and it is near a school, and it's near an area where people can work. So he was so happy. And then the next time I, I saw him, he was so sad. And I asked him, why are you so sad? Your project was finished. Yeah. But those who are living now in that place don't want to pay. So they are using illegal connections, both for water and electricity. You know how much NHA will be charging people who avail of NHA housing project? 200 pesos per month. And the irony is, the poor is willing to pay more than that to their community organizers. So that's, that's one unhealthy perspective about the poor. That when you are poor, you can demand. But the other bad perspective about the poor Sorry, I don't know who actually said this. But it's in the tabloid. 
the palasyo. The palasyo means uh, malakanyang. And it says, peste kayo mga kadamay kayo. Again, that's a bad perspective. Because you look at the poor as with less dignity. And that's a tragedy in our country. When you are poor, you are regarded as lazy, as a, you know, a bum. That's why many poor people are angry. Because for them, they just need opportunities. How does the Lord look at the poor? Those of you who have humble circumstances, rejoice or glory in your high position. What is the high position of the poor as far as the scripture is concerned? Well, in the Bible, we read, This poor man cried, and the Lord heard him, and saved him out of all his troubles. Psalm 72, The Lord will have compassion on the poor and the needy, and the lives of the needy he will save. Psalm 140 verse 12, I know that the Lord will maintain the cause of the afflicted and justice for the poor. In Proverbs 19:17, one who is gracious to a poor man lends to the Lord, and the Lord will repay him for his good deed. The high position of the poor seems to be that as far as God is concerned, he has a heart for the poor. And if God has a heart for the poor, we who call ourselves children of God need also to have a heart for them. We cannot afford to look down at the poor people simply because they are poor. Many of us here started poor. Well, that is the Old Testament. What about the New Testament? Jesus' first teaching in the New Testament mentioned about the poor. And he said, Happy are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. In the Gospel of Luke, there is no qualifier. It just says, Blessed are the poor, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. What does that mean? Well, it's good to look at the paraphrase. In the message, it says, you are blessed when you are at the end of your rope. With less of you, here is now their high position. Here is now their blessing. There is more of God and his rule. Because you cannot depend on people, sometimes you cannot even depend on yourself, then you run to God. In the other translation, God makes happy those who know that they need him. The kingdom of heaven is for them. I love this poster in uh, Google. Sometimes trials are God's way of taking our hands off of things that are not really secure and putting them on the only things only thing that is, and that is God himself. You know, and some people experience that when they run out of source of help 
and God is the only one remaining, they realize that God is sufficient. James wrote about warning about us treating the poor. And this is dedicated to us as a church. James wrote, My brethren, do not hold your faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ with an attitude of personal favoritism. And how is that? For if a man comes into your assembly with a gold ring and dressed in fine clothes, and there are also comes in a poor man in a dirty clothes, and you pay special attention to one who is wearing the fine clothes, and you say, you sit here in a good place, and you say to the poor man, or oh, stand over there, or sit down by my footstool. Have you not made a distinction among yourselves and become judges with evil motives? When we give preferential treatment to people based on their economic status and look down on people who are blessed, we will have a problem with God. So here alone, we see that God is concerned about the poor and their cause. What about the other party? James said in James 1.10, But those who are rich, rejoice in your humiliation. You know, that's a tough statement. The rich will rejoice in their humiliation? Why? What is their humiliation? Look at the text. The rich man is to glory in his humiliation. Why? Because like flowering grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with a scorching wind and withers the grass. Its flowers fall off and the beauty of its appearance is destroyed. So too, the rich man in the midst of his pursuits will fade away. So the humiliation of the rich man is about his pursuits. Why? What are the rich man's pursuits? There are about seven of them. And for many of us, these two are our pursuits. <laughs> Number one is beauty. Number two is degree or degrees, academic achievements. Number three are wealth. Number four are works. Number five, power. Number six, fame and followers. Yeah, some social media. And then the seventh, when you're starting to get older, you're concerned about your health. Why? What's bad with these pursuits? No, they, by themselves, they are not bad. They are blessings. But when you make them priority than God, when you make them priority than righteousness, when you make them priority than justice, then it becomes bad. 
the writer of Ecclesiastes said, I have seen all the things that are done under the sun, and all of them are temporary, meaningless, vanity, chasing after the wind, or dust in the wind. What is common with all these people? How many of you know this lady? Really? You know her? You're still young. <laughs> I'm expecting the guys at the back. Well, this is Marilyn Monroe. She died 36 year old in 1962. What about this beautiful lady? Sis Cheyenne Brando, the daughter of Marlon Brando. She died 25 year old in 1995. What about these people? Beautiful, famous people, rich people. Tony Scott, the director of Top Gun, died in 2012. Whitney Houston died in 2012, 49-year-old. Robin Williams in 2014, 63-year-old. Kate Spade, just last week, 56-year-old. And Anthony Bourdain, 61, 2018, chef. What's common with all of them? Except for Whitney Houston, they say Whitney Houston died of a heart problem complicated by drug overdose. But basically, they all died killing themselves. But they have those earthly pursuits. They look good. They are wealthy. They are famous. That's why just seeing their pictures, you are reminded of how famous they are. But their lives only tell us that what we are pursuing, if God isn't there, will be our humiliation. Why? They cannot really give satisfaction. Of course, the lower version in the Philippines are drugs, multiple relationships whether heterosexual or homosexual. And that too will be humiliation because it will not give real satisfaction. So both the poor and the rich can really only glory when they find something that will truly satisfy. What will truly satisfy? What should be our perspective that will enable us to overcome trials and temptations? James called his audience, do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. And this term beloved is used several times in the Bible, but the reason why they are beloved brethren is because they are beloved by God primarily. They are chosen by him even before the foundation of the world. You know, when you feel you are not loved, you will seek for other loves that will fill up that emptiness. But when you know that you are loved by the creator even before you were born and he will continue to love you no matter what, then you can face trials and temptations strongly. 
Again, look at how James regard people whom he was writing to. Listen, my beloved brethren. Did not God choose the poor in this world to be rich in faith and to be heirs of the kingdom which he promised to those who love him? You know, the biggest blessing in the world that you and I can have is when you know, really know, the love of God and that there are people around you who love you likewise. Not for what you can give them, but because of you yourself. So that will enable us to overcome trials. Because when you are insecure about God's love, when you're insecure about your parental love or friend's love, you cannot overcome temptations. You will always be tempted. This is why Paul wrote in Romans 12.2, Do not allow the world to mold you in its own image. Don't believe the huge billboards that you see. That you can only smile when you have a good shaped body. Or that you have this kind of car or this kind of house. Instead, be transformed from the inside out by the renewing of your mind. So that you will be able to know what God's will is. Whatever God finds good, pleasing, and complete. I like the other paraphrase from the Living Bible. Don't copy the behavior and custom of this world. Why? What's the behavior and custom of many people in the Philippines? Many people now want to become barangay captain and counselors and mayors and governors, senators. Don't copy that behavior. Be a new and different person with a fresh newness in all that you do and in all that you think. Then you will learn from your own experience how God's ways will really satisfy you. Only when you open your mind to God, only when you open your mind to His ways, will you discover what will truly make you authentically happy. You know, how can you tempt somebody who is happy already? If you go to Vikings and you have eaten already for one hour and a half and somebody will invite you to eat again, will you go with a person? When you are so full, when you are filled with the love of God and the joy, His peace, why will you exchange that for something fleeting? But when you are dissatisfied with God, it will be very easy to be tempted. Just like Adam and Eve. Just like David. Just like Solomon. The second way how to face and overcome trials 
is to always pronounce what is true. Because many times, we follow the pronouncement of the world. Look at James chapter 1, verse 13. Let no one say when he is tempted, well, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. No, pastor. I think it was God who tempted me. I was just there in my cubicle, in my office cubicle, and then God sent this beautiful lady with very low plunging whatever. And I believe God is the one who did that. Really? How did you know? When you have, when you have had extramarital relationship, you say, well, God brought that person to me. James said, each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. The word lust in the Bible means excessive desire. Desire is not bad, but when it is excessive, it becomes lust. The desire for food is good, but when you're eating, when you're already full, what do you call that? Gluttony. When you have slept already eight hours and you will sleep additional four, you know, that's already over-desiring to sleep. We are enticed by our own desires. Then when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. You know, we cannot blame God for our failures. I was reading one article in the internet about a mother who accidentally, who accidentally ran over her child. She didn't realize she was at the back, and the child died. He was, she was angry with God. And the one to whom she was talking to, when she was very angry, was tempted was tempted to say, it's not God who killed your child, it was you. But of course, he did not say that. It's ironical that some people who don't even believe in God, when they experience crisis or tragedy in their lives, will blame God. So James is saying, let no one say, and Christians should not participate in that danger. That we will say it was God who is behind it. How sure are we? When Job experienced these disasters in his life, in his limited mind, he thought it was God. And when you think about God being responsible all the more you become miserable. So what should be our pronouncement when we are going to, through tough times? 
James continued by saying, whatever is good, whatever is perfect, is a gift coming down to us from God, our Father, who created all the lights in the heavens. But unlike the lights in the heavens, that sometimes is too bright, sometimes it is dim, God is different. He never changes. He does not cast a shifting shadow. Meaning God will never deceive us. God will not be good today and mean tomorrow. What he was yesterday, he will be today and he will be forever. That's what James is saying. So we cannot blame God for our disasters. Especially disasters where we are personally responsible. James 1.18, he chose to give birth to us by giving us his true word. You know, when we are going through trials, when we are going through temptation, it is very critical that our minds are filled with God's word because when our minds are filled with people's opinions, especially if they are fake news and ungrounded opinions, then we become even more miserable. God gave us his true word. His true word is reliable. It can be dependent upon. And look at the content of that word. We, we, out of all creation, became his prized possession. Yes, when you go to an orchidarium, you will say, wow, beautiful, beautiful plants and flowers. When you look at the zoo, wow, beautiful creatures, beautiful animals. But you know what the word of God is saying? What is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? You have made him a little less lower than God. You have crowned him with glory and majesty. You have put all things under his feet. You know, God made us his prized possession. Whether you are poor Christian, whether you are rich Christian, you are precious to God. You are the apple of his eye. Jesus died for you. He was willing to give himself for you. So don't exchange yourself with cheap substitutes like 10 minutes to 30 minutes sexual pleasure with somebody not your wife or not your husband or with money that you exchange your soul. Jesus said, what would it profit a man to gain the whole world? And deep inside in your very soul you are empty. But when the Lord is your shepherd, when you have a connection with your shepherd, you will not want. Because the shepherd will make you lie down in green pastures, lead you in quiet waters. But many times when we are going through trial, when we are going through temptations, we cannot anymore look at our shepherd. We only focus on our problems or we only focus on our wants. James is telling us 
during time of crisis, during time of trials, it is good that we follow what the psalmist said in Psalm 121. I will lift up my eyes to the hills. Where will my help come from? My help comes from the Lord who made the heavens and the earth. When we seek the help of men, we get frustrated. We get angry. But those who trust in the Lord, Psalm 125, will be like Mount Zion. They will not be moved. Those who trust in him will be surrounded by mountains. They will abide forever. So it's very critical. During times of trials and temptation, what are you saying? Because what you are saying will affect your mind, will affect your decisions. It will be good that during trials and temptations, we hold on to the true word. You know, it's one thing to say, this problem is too difficult. I cannot handle this. And to say, this problem is too difficult. But God's word says, I can do all things because Christ will supply me the strength I need to overcome this. How can a man guard his heart and make it pure? Well, by relying upon the living word. So again, when we are confronted by trials and by temptation, we need to ask ourselves, where are we focused? What are we saying, our pronouncement? Because it will determine the quality of our lives and our destinies. Let me give you a sample of pronouncements. The psalmist says, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Meaning the goodness of God is not just cerebral. It can be experienced. It can be seen. Oh, the joys of those who take refuge in him. Fear the Lord, you godly people, for do those who fear him will have all that they need. Even strong and young lions sometimes go hungry. But those who trust in the Lord, they will lack no good. This verse is understated in our Bible translations in John 1.16. And I, I was so happy that one translation brought out its beauty. Because the usual translation is, from his fullness... We have received abundant grace. And that's nice. But the Living Bible says, We have all benefited from the rich blessings Jesus brought to us. Blessing upon blessing. Heaped upon us. So how can you be self-pitiful? How can you be depressed when you have statements like that? That I am not only a precious person in God's sight. I am a really, really blessed person. 
when Joel Austin wrote his first book, with this sense, it became a bestseller. Because many Christians don't really realize how blessed we are in Christ. We have all benefited from the rich blessings Jesus brought to us. I came that you might have life and enjoy life to the pleroma, to the fullness. If you are experiencing the fullness of Christ, you will never be depressed. But many Christians now are depressed. Are lonely. But Christ can fill us up to the overflow. So what are your pronouncements when you are going through tough times? Here is the worst pronouncement when you're going through a trial. Maybe God is angry with me. Maybe I did something wrong that I need to discover so that God will smile at me again. Is that the way you look at yourself? I thought there is now no more condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. I thought all our sins are already forgiven. How come we are still wallowing on guilt and self-condemnation? Again, when we are confronted with trials, what is the basis of our perspective and our pronouncement? James 1:18 says, it should be the word of truth. And the word of truth is written in the Bible. Many of us are spiritually impoverished. We are physically obese. But we are spiritually malnourished. No wonder we have many relational problems. But look at the biblical promise in our passage. How happy is the man who perseveres under trial. For once God's purpose is accomplished, for once he passed the test, for once he realized God's intention, then he will receive the Stephanos, the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. And that's already the key. How do I respond to trials and temptation? Well, to keep, to maintain your love for Christ. When we are going through trial, the worst thing that we can do is to question, why is this happening? Because many times you will never know. The proper response when we are going through trial is chapter 1, verse 12. Lord, grant me the grace to persevere. The word persevere in the Greek, hypomeno, means to keep on carrying the weight and to keep on walking. By ourselves, it will be tough. But if somebody will carry that weight with you, you will be able 
to persevere, to endure, and to overcome. Let me now show you the difference between a trial and a temptation. In the Greek language, it has only one word, perasmos. So it can be translated negatively as a temptation, positively as a testing or trial. When the source of that situation is Satan and the aim is to make you fall, make you alienated from God, and later to destroy you, then that thing is called temptation. But why will God allow that to happen? Well, later you will see that when God allows the temptation in your life and my life, he is faithful. He will provide a way out so that you can overcome it. So our response are threefold. One is always pray. Lord, lead us not into temptation. Second is to continue on to believe in God that he will give you victory. At pag talagang hindi kaya, you run away. Like Joseph, he ran away. Now, the trial or test is given by God to make us mature, to honor us, like in the case of Job, or to bless us later, like in the case of Abraham. But because Satan is real, when God is giving us this trial or testing, Satan, who is a liar, will use that to deceive you and me so that he can destroy us. So our response to trial is also prayer, is also faith, but the bigger response is to persevere. To persevere. And let me show you a sample of person who is blessed, according to James, because he persevered under trial. Remember this guy, Abraham? How many times was he tested? Well, initially, he was given a trial. Leave your father and mother, leave your country, and go to the place that I will show you. Did he pass the test? Yes, because in Genesis 12, verse 4, it says, Abraham obeyed God. And then the second trial was while in Canaan, in the promised land, there was a famine. So what did Abraham do? Like many people today, he panicked, went to Egypt. And while on the way to Egypt, he realized his wife was beautiful. So he said, hey, when people look at you and ask you, tell them you are my sister. Or else they will kill me and get you. So what happened in Egypt? Fail. Of course, that was a good failure because when he went back, he was richer because Pharaoh paid dowry for Sarah. Can you imagine Abraham bringing home an imported maid? How would you feel if you're Filipino and then your maid in the house is British? That was Abraham. 
he, fa he failed the second test. Third test was conflict. Because he was rich and his nephew was rich, their shepherds, their men were quarreling. So what did Abraham do? Abraham said to Lot, hey, here is the whole land. Choose what you like and the leftover will be mine. He passed the test. The fourth is when Lot was taken by the kings of the north, Abraham with his 318 ran after the cap captors and defeated the four kingdoms and brought back Lot. And then the king of Sodom and Gomorrah said to Abraham, okay, Abraham, you may get as much booty as you like. And Abraham said, no, no. Give to the other people what they need, but as for me, I will not get from you lest you say you have made Abraham rich. He passed the test. Next test is the wife test. What did Sarah say to Abraham when Abraham was 85? Hey, God is taking so long. Lie down with my maid Hagar so that she can bring forth a child for us. What happened to Abraham? He failed the test. So there was a problem then. There is still a problem now. And then the next difficult test was when Hagar's son, Ishmael, was growing up already. And Hagar already had a son. Ah, Sarah had a son, Ishmael. And Sarah did not like Hagar and her son. So Sarah said to Abraham, send away that mistress. And Abraham was grieving. What did he do? He sent them away. He passed the test. And then there's another test. When Isaac was growing up, Ishmael was gone already. God tested Abraham and said, offer your son, your only son, your loved son, Isaac, as a burnt offering to, um, to the place I will tell you. If you were Abraham, will you do that? And we know that Abraham passed that test. How come so many? You know, when you're going through one test after the other, you know, you feel bad. I realize, now I appreciate my teachers in high school. If you only have one test, the final exam, that will be tough. But if you have preliminary testings, you are being prepared for the final exam. Abraham was being prepared for the final test. And he passed the test. So what happened? Look at Genesis 22:16. God said, by myself I promise, because you have done this thing, you have not withheld your son, your only son, what will happen? I will greatly bless you. I will greatly multiply your seed as the stars of the heavens and as the sand of the seashore. 
in your seed, singular, in your seed, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. This was given 2,000 years before Christ. And that seed was Jesus, according to Paul in Galatians 3. In your seed, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. Why? Because you have passed the test. You have passed the trial. That was Genesis 22. Look at Genesis 24 verse 1. Now Abraham was old, advanced in age. And the Lord, what? Blessed Abraham in every possible way during that time. Abraham does not lack anything rich or famous people in those days have. When you pass the test again and again and again, God is preparing you for something not only good and great, but also glorious. Some people are contented with good. Colin said, no, you should be prepared for, from good to great. But in the Bible, it's not just good to great. It's good to great to glorious. I love Genesis 25 verse 8. Abraham breathed his last. And he died in ripe old age. How old? How old? 175. How old was he when God called him? Remember? When God called him the first time? 75. And God gave him another 100 years. Don't tell yourself you're too old for God to call you. God called Abraham 75. And he gave him additional 100 years. And look at his ending. Satisfied. Satisfied with? With life. How will be your ending? Unsatisfied? Angry with life? Or like Abraham, you have reached your full and satisfied I'd just like to show you how God fulfilled that promise. I will greatly multiply your children. This is the religious adherence in the world population in 2000. Christians are 33%. Muslims are 19.6%. Muslims are descendants of Abraham. Christians are spiritual descendants of Abraham and the Jewish people are physical descendants of Abraham, 0.2%. If you put them together, it is like 52.8%. Of the world's entire population, call Abraham father. In 2015, take note the Christians decreased. Before we were 33%, now we only are 31.2%. The Muslims increased from 19.6 to 24.1. But my point here is in 2015, 
55.5% of all the people in the world are related to Abraham. By the way, the bad news is in year 2050, the number of Christians and Muslims will be the same. And from 2050 onwards, there will be more Muslims than Christians. But that's not my point. I'm not preaching on missions. I'm preaching on trials. <laughs> Can you imagine Abraham, 75-year-old, God saying to him, I will bless you and I will multiply you. You're 75, your wife is 65, and you don't have a child. And God is saying, the word of God is saying, I will multiply your descendants. You know, when our perspective is very short or very narrow, we really get depressed. But when our perspective is God's size, when our pronouncement is from God, then we can overcome. That's just the physical blessing. Look at the spiritual blessing of Abraham. James 2.23, you also find this in Second Chronicles 27. Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. There is no one who is righteous in the Bible. But this guy Abraham was given a label righteous. Why? Because he believed in God. He was righteous not because he was great or good. He made blunders. But he was righteous because he put his faith in God. And when he put his faith in God, he was called what? The friend of God. Can you imagine if you are friend of Rodrigo Duterte, you must feel good. But you are a friend of God. You should feel better. Are you feeling better? Jesus said, I no longer call you slaves. I call you friends. And then you're depressed because you don't have a friend. You posted something in the Facebook and after two days, the likes is only 20 and you get depressed? If God is your friend, what a friend we have in Jesus. Wow. But not only that, in Hebrews 11 verse 10, Abraham was looking for the city. You know, I can imagine when Abraham left his country, by the way, the name of his country now is Iraq. Before it was Ur of the Chaldees. When he left Ur of the Chaldees, it was the New York of his days. You will see ziggurats, buildings, tall buildings. And then God told him to leave that to a land that God will give him so Abraham went to Canaan and he was looking for, for a city better than Ur of the Chaldees. And what did he find out? Maybe that's why he failed the test. Famine. Famine. 
But he did not stop. He kept on looking. Look at that progressive tense of Hebrews 11.10. He was continually looking for the city whose architect and builder is God. Like young ladies, I'm looking for a partner who is from God. Not just anybody. Now sometimes when we are too desperate, we are saying, whoever comes out of that door, that's it. Abraham was looking for a city whose architect and builder is God. He will not take less. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. And today, Abraham is in that city already. So to summarize, how do we overcome trials and temptation? The first one is, let us have a biblical perspective. Regardless of my economic, social, educational status in the Philippines, what is true is I am beloved by God and I am loved by my brethren in my community. Number two, we need to have biblical pronouncements. We need to be able to say and believe it that our God is good all the time. That there is no time in your life that God isn't good. That even if my experience today is not good, God can cause that situation to turn out for my good. Because of a love relationship with Him. And number three, when I'm going through trials and temptation, I will persevere. I will not quit. I will not compromise. Because Jesus already prepared the crown of life which he himself wants to put on my head on that glorious day. And I will not disappoint him because I love him. What is our perspective? When there is a big temptation before us, you need to look at God who is faithful. You need to pronounce this. If you can memorize this, memorize this. And then believe the promise. No temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. Meaning other people also are being tempted. But God is faithful. He will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. So when there is a temptation, you need to believe that you can overcome it. And with the temptation, God will provide the way of escape so that you will be able to endure it. So when there is a temptation, don't close your eyes. Open your spiritual eyes and see God's way of escape so that you will be able to persevere 
and overcome it. That's our perspective. Amidst this trial, amidst this temptation, God is faithful. What is our pronouncement? What do we say to ourselves? What do we say to other people, other Christians who are going through trials and temptation? We need to be able to say, let us fix. Not just look. Let us fix. Let us gaze on Jesus. Why Jesus? Because he is the author. He is the perfecter of our faith. Who for the joy set before him endured, persevered the cross. Consider him who endured, who persevered, who carried such hostility so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Jesus did not quit on you on the cross. We should not quit on him during times of trials and temptations. He never gave up on you. You should never give up on him. That should be our pronouncement. What about the promise? Whatever is born of God, if you are born of God, what's the promise? Whatever is born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world. What is that? Our faith. Who is the one who overcomes the world? He who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. And he is in control of all that there is in the world today. Paul wrote, thanks be to God who gives us the victory. And why are we victorious? Through our Lord Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians 2.14 Thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph in Christ. But pastor, why does God need to allow me to go through this trial? To go through this temptation? Jeremiah 29.11 says there is a good purpose. There is a good plan. Besides, the God we believe can turn our messes into a message, our tests into a testimony, our trials into triumph, and our being victims to be us becoming victors. This Lord who loved us can turn what? The curses in our lives into blessings for us. And why will he do that? Because he loves us. No other reason. Not because you're a missionary, not because you're a pastor, not because you're teaching in Sunday school. Sometimes we use those things. But the Lord will turn our curses, turn our trials, turn our temptations into something good for us because he loves you and me. Look at this beautiful statement. If God is for us, whether we are poor or rich, who will be against us? In all these things, 
we hypernikoi, we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. And nothing in the world, past, present, or future, nothing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. What should keep us standing to the end is the love of Christ for us. And the only response he wants from us is to believe on that love and to love him in return. I love this uh, ancient hymn. <laughs> we were singing this in InterVarsity in uh, college. Will your anchor hold in the storms of life when the clouds unfold their wings of strife? When the strong tides lift and the cables strain, will your anchor drift or firm remain? We have an anchor that keeps the soul steadfast and sure while the billows roll, fastened to the rock which cannot be moved, grounded firm and deep in the Savior's love. If you know you are loved deeply, then you can overcome powerfully. Let me end with this uh, two statements. One Old Testament, one New Testament. Sorry, it is not Psalm 92, 14. It should be Psalm 91, 14. Because Pete, because Joel, because Toiditz loves me, says the Lord, I will rescue him. I will protect him for he acknowledged my name. He will call on me and I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will deliver him. I will honor him with long life. I will satisfy him and show him my salvation. That's how committed the Lord is to us who love him. When we go through trials and through temptations, do you continue to love him? If you love him, then you will bear all things. You will believe all things. You will hope all things. You will not commit suicide. You will endure all things. You will fight the good fight. You will finish your course. And you will keep on holding the faith. Because the love of God in your heart will never fail. It will sustain you to the end. One guy had failed again and again and had rose up again and again. Let me share to you in closing his perspective, his pronouncement, and promise. Peter said, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you had been distressed by various trials, in this you greatly rejoice. Don't feel self-pitiful. Don't be depressed. 
Don't feel bad about your situation. Greatly rejoice so that the proof of your faith being more precious than gold, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not see him now, you believe in him. You greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. That should be our countenance when we are going through tough times and temptations. Let us pray. Our God, thank you that you are our heavenly father. You know our frame. You know that we are but dust. We are creatures of weaknesses, limitations, doubts, anxieties, fears. But Lord, thank you for reminding us that in Christ, we have an anchor that is sure and steadfast. In Christ's love, we are secured. In Christ's agony, he did not quit on us so we can remain faithful to him to the end. Lord, I pray if there is anyone here who is going through tough times, Lord, embrace him. Embrace her with your love so that he or she will know that he or she is not alone and that she should not pity herself. He or she can rejoice that in his humble circumstances, Lord, you have raised him up. You have allowed him to go through this trial because there is a better picture, a better plan, a better reward awaiting. Lord, for those of us who failed at one point in time in our lives, forgive us. Help us to rise up again. Help us to experience what Paul said, that we will overwhelmingly conquer, not because we are good or strong, but because our God, our Lord, our Shepherd, is good and strong. Thank you, Lord, that you are a wonderful friend to us. Thank you, O God, that you are a loving Father to us and that you will never give up on us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.